You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Well, good morning. We're glad to have you with us. If you've got your Bibles, we're back in Exodus chapter 20 today. Uh, really thankful that John Wallace was able to fill in last week while our family was away. And if you didn't get a chance to to be here last week, encourage you to uh, to go back and listen to his sermon. He did a great job of reminding us how the truths of Exodus that we've been learning reinforce our trust in God today. And so he was able to look at uh, Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount and, and how that ties in. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you didn't get a chance to be with us um, last week. We're in Exodus chapter 20 and we're picking up with the Ten Commandments today. We're going to look at the first four commandments uh, because I want to package our next two weeks under Jesus's response when he's pressed about what are the greatest commandments, what are, what are the greatest laws given to us by God, because he says that it's to love God and to love others, right? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so I think we can see the Ten Commandments falling under the umbrella of those two, uh, those two instruction points, that we're to love God and love others. And so that greatest command really encompasses the four commandments that we see here that we're going to look at today. Uh, the idea that we're to love God well, to love Him well by not putting other gods before Him, by not having graven images or idols, not uh, misusing His name, uh, using uh, a day of the week as a means of worshiping Him. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like today. We said two weeks ago that the Old Testament, the New Testament, there's some differences when it comes to how we carry out obedience to God. We said that the moral character of God does not change, right? But that the application of how some of these things get carried out does, particularly for the reason that we're not a nation as the people of God like Israel was, right? So Israel was its own governing body. It had a, a, its own government. It was a nation. It was a country. It was a people group that uh, lived and operated under the same guidelines, whereas today we understand God's people to be spread out all over the world under various governments and various regulations. So um, a lot of the law is uh, fulfilled in the sense that Christ came to be obedient to the law. We understand that, so that's a big reason why things change in the New Testament. And then secondly, because we're not a nation, there's things that we wouldn't be able to carry out even if we wanted to, because we don't live and operate as God's people under one nation. Uh, but the moral character of God has not changed. Um, and so there is a call for us to be obedient to that. And so we, we ended two weeks ago talking about whether our hearts are inclined towards a mindset of lawlessness. Do we want to be released from our responsibilities to be obedient to God? We talked about legalism. Do we feel bound to be obedient? Like we know we have to be obedient. And so therefore we try to package God's law in such a way where it's manageable. Uh, it's conducive to the ways that we want to live life. So we reinterpret, we, uh, we maybe add on and subtract in ways that serve us best. Or do we relate to God's law in the ways that he called us to, which is to love him through that obedience, to to express our love for Christ by being obedient to his commands. And so we're going to see specifically how God laid this out for Old Testament Israel here at Mount Sinai, but also seeing how it correlates to instructions given to us in the New Testament as well. So Exodus chapter 20, we'll start reading in verse 1, but our text today will actually start in verse 3. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Our summary sentence for today. Christians believe that the idols of this world and their fleeting pleasures aren't worthy to be compared to the glories promised for following the resurrected Jesus. So they leave their idols behind with the desire to be fully devoted to him. Christians believe that the idols of this world and their fleeting pleasures aren't worthy to be compared to the glories promised for following the resurrected Jesus. So they leave their idols behind with a desire to be fully devoted to him. For our kids, following Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. So love him and obey him. As God gives these commands here at Mount Sinai, he's setting a precedent. He's setting a precedent for the people of that time, but he's also setting a precedent for all of God's people that would come later on as well. The precedent being that worshiping God is an all or nothing decision right? That, that we don't get to embrace aspects of following God. We don't get to pick and choose. It's not an a la carte type of setup, right? Like we don't get to kind of work through the commands of God and say, I'll do this and I'll do this. I'm probably not going to do that. I'm definitely not going to do that. That it's an all or nothing type of decision. Um, they're going to be required to respond to this with a desire for obedience. When Joshua comes to the end of his life in Joshua chapter 24, um, he challenges the people once again. What are you going to do? Are you going to serve God or not? You have a choice. You have a decision to make. Uh, Elijah makes a similar statement at Mount Carmel when he's battling the, the prophets of Baal. And he turns to Israel and says, who will you worship? Is it God or is it Baal? Jesus even comes along and, and offers a similar type statement when he says that we can't serve two masters, right? We can't serve God and money, that we have to make a choice. We have to make a decision. It's an all or nothing type of decision. These first commands, these first four commands are needed for Israel because they're coming out of a lifestyle where they were uh, ingrained in the exact opposite of what God's talking about here, right? Like the idea of a polytheistic and idolat idolatrous culture is what they were birthed in, right? So for, for centuries now, they've been living in this understanding that, that everything in creation is represented by a God, and to depict that, they construct idols, these physical objects that they can look to and pray to and offer sacrifices to. And so this is their mindset. This is their habit. And God has to break them of that. We've talked about him getting them out of Egypt, but also getting Egypt out of them. And so these commands are needed to help reprogram them because they were guilty not just of being exposed to these gods, but also they were guilty of worshiping these same gods of the Egyptians. And Ezekiel chapter 20, 
Verse 7, it says, And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So the Israelites were guilty of worshiping these gods that God battled in the plagues, right? And in spite of seeing their defeat, Israel still struggled to let go. These commands are needed to help reprogram them back to what they should have understood from creation, that there's one God, there's one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. We talked about how these four commands are rightly summarized by Jesus when he says that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 30. In these four commands, God informs us how he wants to be loved and how we show covenant loyalty with these vertical commands towards him. So you've probably heard that, you know, the first four commands really deal with our relationship to God, how we interact and relate to him. And then the final six commands deal far more with the relationship that we have with each other and how do we interact and serve and love one another? How do we avoid uh, hurting and harming and defaming one another as well. So these first four commands deal uh, with that idea of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's jump in those together today. Number one, we want to prioritize God rightly. Prioritize God rightly. Now, I told you that um, the understanding that I have is that the, the key components of God's Old Testament law are reiterated to us in the New Testament. And so we don't look to the Old Testament and say that verbatim, this is what we are following in its original intent. Jesus is going to package that as the law of Christ in the New Testament. So nothing gets lost in that translation. But instead of us trying to work through the weeds of how do we do this since we're not the nation of Israel, Jesus gives us that information. So we ought to then be able to read a passage like this and say, well, where's the New Testament parallel? Where does this translate for how we live this out in the New Testament? John chapter uh, 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only God. He is the only way for salvation. He is the only way to relate to our Heavenly Father right? So this idea of no other gods before me, there are no other gods, right? There are no other uh, valid objects of worship. And so God informs his people who have been exposed to the exact contrary, right? That there's all these gods of Egypt that are worthy of our worship. God has to show them that, no, there's one. There's one way, there's one truth, and there is one life. We cannot overvalue creation by making other things as important or more important than God. We cannot overvalue creation by making other things as important or more important than God. It's through Exodus chapter 20 that we're reminded of some of the core beliefs of Christianity. One being that we are a monotheistic society. We're a monotheistic people, meaning there is one God that we worship. Now, it gets, it gets confusing when we talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and how they are three beings but one God. Super confusing for kids, 
right? Um, I think as we, as we grow older as adults, it's easier maybe to just come to an acceptance of it. Uh, as kids, it gets super confusing. We survey our kids at Trinity all the time about their understanding of, of the doctrine of the Trinity because it's key that they understand that we don't, we don't worship three gods. And yet we give these surveys and it's, it's, it's clear that our kids stay confused about it at this age, right? That, that a lot of times they see the Holy Spirit maybe as a force, not a personal being, or they see Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit as three separate gods. But what we're told here very clearly in Exodus 20 is there's one God, there's no other gods that are be placed before him, which means there's obviously a, a rebuttal to atheism, the idea that there's no God, but it also pushes back against polytheism, the idea of many gods, but then something that maybe you see creep in with some of your relationships in your family or coworkers or whatnot, the idea of pantheism, that, that God is in everything, right? There's, there's the, the naturalistic or the new age perspectives that they kind of get caught up in the beauty and the wonder of creation and begin to think that that is God itself, right? God is not a sunset, right? We can see the glory and the, the awe and the wonder of his creation, but we don't worship the sunset. We don't worship creation. We don't, we don't see him as being in creation, right? Which is where uh, that pantheistic mindset starts to creep in if we, if we get on that route. There's only one true God and we worship him alone, which addresses the idolatrous hearts that are in us because we seek to worship something, right? Like there's really nobody out there that doesn't worship something. Now, you'll have people who claim that there's no God and that they don't worship anything, and, and yet you dive deep into what they're really thinking and feeling, and most of the times they've set themselves up as a God unto themselves, right? And so they worship their desires and their pleasures, and so they sacrifice to themselves, right? But we all worship something, and this passage here helps direct that desire for worship to the correct object, Life can really be simplified by, will we spend our time worshiping the right object or not? That's really what our life comes down to, right? We're, we're placed here on this earth, and the question that's pushed upon us is, will we worship the right object or not? Will we give our devotion, our affection, our passion, uh, our effort to the right object? Romans chapter 1, verse 18, reinforces the idea that we all worship something, and much of the world deviates from the correct object into their own corrupt thinking. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they didn't just stop worshiping, right? It says they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This passage shows the deterioration that comes from following false gods. It leads to a life of ignorance and moral corruption. The Bible goes to great lengths to talk about how idols make poor gods for us, particularly when they're compared to the one true God. 
right? There's passages that talk about how idols can't see, they can't know, they can't act, they can't love, they can't save. Think about it even even on a more uh, in-depth level. Idols make promises that they can't keep, right? Think about the the common things that we might would label as idols in in our day. Maybe the the relationships that we have, whether that's with uh, uh, a husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, even potentially with our children, like we can make idols and gods out of relationships that, that bring us joy, bring us pleasure, bring us satisfaction for a period of time. They promise to do that, right? Our hobbies and our interests and our jobs sometimes make promises and, and become idols to us because they bring joy and satisfaction and fulfillment to us. Perhaps it's money where we find our, our trust and our assurance and our confidence in what we have in the bank. These are, these are things that we can easily set up as gods in our life because they, in our minds, offer to love us, to care for us, and to provide for us, but they always fail. We sang today about how our one true God does not fail. These gods, these idols promise things that they can't keep. In Psalm chapter 115, Verse four, it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Think about the gods that I just mentioned to you and the promises that are made and how they They don't always provide what they promise to to give. Relationships, there's no assurance in those, right? Even the the most faithful couple at times will have cracks in their marriage and and, uh, separations unfortunately occur, right? Uh, Bad choices and decisions are made because of what? The hardness of our hearts. And so um, you you can put your confidence, you can put your trust, you can put your worship towards a human relationship only to find it fail, only to find that it fails. Our hobbies and our interests and our our jobs are things that for a time may give us everything that we think we need, may give us everything we think that's been promised to us, and yet what we find is that our abilities to do those things will wane over time. Sometimes we don't even ever get the fulfillment from it. I was leaving leaving Publix this morning from, from finishing up my notes, and the manager uh, asked me, like, what was, was I doing a Bible study or whatnot? I told him when I was getting ready to go preach. And he just kind of made the comment, I don't know where his experience came from. I don't know if, if his uh, family was subjected to this, but he just kind of out of the blue made a comment. He's like, you know what? Travel baseball doesn't understand um, the, the need for people to be in church because it always plans all of its tournaments on Sunday. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, they they don't, they don't factor in people going to church, right? And so he just kind of walked off, and I wondered, like, does, does he potentially have regret with how he handled his kids? I don't know. I, I've certainly spoke with enough dads over the years who gave time and attention and money and resources to things in hopes of their kids getting scholarships and getting, you know, opportunities in, in pro, pro ball where none of that ever came to fruition, right? And they sacrificed the spiritual for the, the material, and it, and it never even materialized. Others who, who get there, who make it, find that their jobs are, are always on the chopping block, right? There's always cuts. There's always the next guy coming who, do, who will take that spot. So even if our hobbies and interests 
um, fulfill a lot of what was promised. It's not, it's not long longevity there. There's no, there's no uh, long perseverance there. Like it goes away at some point. Our money is even unstable in its value, right? Depending on where the economy is, really shapes and determines how valuable our money even is. They make poor gods, these idols, when compared to the one true God. We should certainly enjoy creation. The Bible would tell us to steward creation, but to never worship creation, that our worship only ever belongs to the creator. You may think like, well, this, this is kind of old news for us. Like we don't really struggle with idols maybe in the New Testament. We've progressed beyond that, um, that old way of thinking or that primitive way of thinking. But 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 cautions us as New Testament believers, right? The very last verse of 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. In fact, the the New Testament and the Old Testament guards against putting ourselves in tempting situations where we would give ourselves to idols. You can read in Exodus chapter 34, verses 12 through 16, where God is going to caution the Israelites about the the um, the commitments they make with unbelievers, the the agreements that they make with unbelievers to evaluate whether that's going to be a good relationship. Will it cause them to compromise their belief systems? Particularly, he says, you're not to marry people outside the nation of Israel because you will compromise your religion if you do so. Right? So he was he was very aware of the fact that his people needed to be guarded from idols. We get the same the same idea in the New Testament, right? When when Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 18, he challenges us in the choices that we make with aligning with darkness, right? Particularly that there is to be uh, a, a determination by us that we're not going to marry unbelievers. We're not going to join ourselves with the unholy. It's a strong encouragement to our kids as you're growing up and you're developing relationships, as you get into middle school and high school and you start to turn your attention to the, to the opposite gender and you start to think about marriage and families, that, that you understand the, the, the teachings of Scripture, that we want to protect ourselves from idols and to involve ourselves in an intimate relationship like, like that with someone who doesn't worship the one true God, then it sets us up for spiritual failure. We're to prioritize God rightly. There's to be no other gods before him. Number two, we're to actively orient our lives around loving him fully with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're told that he's a jealous God, which typically conjures up a negative thought process. Jealousy is typically viewed as a a negative trait. But when you think about jealousy, particularly of God, uh, jealousy is when you want what's best for somebody and you, and you feel like they're, they're going in, a, in the wrong direction for it, right? And so when we get jealous, maybe in a relationship, we believe that we're the best for that individual and we're afraid that maybe they're, they're choosing someone else. Um, and, and we might be the best, we might not be the best for that individual. We certainly know that our relationship with God is best for us, right? So his jealousy is right, it's correct, it's appropriate, His jealousy is seen in that he wants what's best for those he loves, and he is the best for us. We're told that he's a jealous God. He wants us because he is best for us. He demands that we dedicate all we are and all that we have to his service and his praise. All of our work, all of our play is to be done for him. 
The question that I would kind of challenge you with this morning is, what evidence would you point towards in your life that God is the supreme authority and treasure of your life? What evidence could you point to in your life that would say, he is the supreme authority, he is the supreme treasure? Or does your life look more like that a la carte approach? Where he is sometimes, but not all the time. He is in some ways, but not all of the ways. He is in this part of my life, but not this part of my life. It's not an a la carte approach. It's an all or nothing when it comes to worshiping him. He says, no other gods before me. So nothing above him or nothing equal with him is allowed to be in our life. How is he shaping the choices, decisions, and actions that you take on a daily basis? Can you point to evidence in your life that says, here's how he's my authority. Here's how he's my treasure. Here are the idols that I've left. Here are the idols that I've kept myself from because he's my supreme treasure. He's my one God. Number two, we worship God rightly. The first commandment deals with the prioritization of God, that he is to be the sole authority of our life. No other gods. But then secondly, which builds off that idea, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We've already read 1 John 5, 21, right? That we're to keep ourselves from idols. Number one, we cannot devalue God by fashioning him into an image that serves our agenda and puts him under our control. We cannot devalue God by fashioning him into an image that serves our agenda and puts him under our control. What this commandment tells us is that how we worship matters just as much as who we worship, right? The first commandment is who we worship has to be right. The second commandment is that how we worship him has to be right as well. We don't make God, he made us. Therefore, we can't create an object to worship. Right? The reason that this is, 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 is refuted and not allowed is because the God that we worship is infinite. Idols make him finite. He's invisible. Idols make him visible. He's omnipotent. Idols make him impotent. He's all present. Idols make him localized. He's living. Idols make him dead. He's spiritual. Idols make him material. We can't create an object to worship because he is spirit. We also can't refashion him into an image uh, that we like better or worship him in the wrong ways. These are ways that we violate this idea, this command. And we're told again in the New Testament to keep ourselves from this, right? So it's an Old Testament command that's also repackaged in the New Testament. No idols, no carved images, no graven images are we allowed to worship. Now you look at that and you say, that's not me. Like I don't, I don't ever get tempted to go buy some weird object and put it in my house and bow down to it and worship it. That certainly feels super primitive, right? Even though there's aspects of this world and this creation and people that walk this planet right now that are, that are in bondage to that, we typically view ourselves as freed from that, right? Like we're higher level thinking. We certainly understand that, that silver and rock and stone don't answer our prayers, But I think the heart of what's happening here, we certainly are guilty of. And that's the idea of making a God that we can control. Let me say that again. A God you make is a God you can control. And that's what the children of Israel were being guarded against. We struggle less with making visible images to worship and far more with creating mental images of who we think God is 
and what we think he wants. Right? So you may not be struggling with making a God with your hands, but a lot of us struggle with making a God with our thoughts. And we recreate him. You hear people talk about like, my God wouldn't do that. My God doesn't do that. My God doesn't think that way or my God doesn't act that way or, or my God doesn't prohibit this or wh- whatever it may be. Our society is very much guilty of idols because they're recreating God to fit their agenda. And when you do that, he is no longer the God of the Bible. He has become an idol. He has become a different image that you are giving yourself to. Think about the golden calf, right? The golden calf later here in Exodus is a God that is used to manipulate, right? And, and the way, and we'll get there when we get there, but like the whole, the whole worship scene is that they are worshiping the God who saved them from Egypt. They're worshiping Yahweh, but they've packaged him differently than he's revealed himself. You fast forward into 2 Kings, there's a guy named Jehu who comes on the scene and he starts ridding Israel of Baal. Right? He's responsible for taking down Jezebel. It's that time of Ahab and just a lot of wickedness in Israel. And he's praised for it. He's praised for coming in and getting Baal cut out of Israel. But he's also rebuked for the fact that he doesn't get rid of the golden calves. Well, how does he get rid of Baal but not get rid of the golden calves? Well, it was two different ideas there. Baal was one God, but the golden calf was still carrying this connotation of this is the Yahweh God of the Old Testament, the one who saved us from Exodus, but we've packaged him differently so we can manipulate him, so we can use him how we want to. Because you're going to see later in Exodus, the people cry out to Aaron and they're like, man, we don't know where Moses went. We don't know if he's coming back. We need something to follow. We need something to worship. Even though they're still at the foot of the mountain where God's holiness is keeping them separated. They say, hey, let's go a different route. Let's put all our gold together and we'll construct something that we can control, that fits our agenda. And then they proceed to worship in all the ways that they were told not to worship. They start to do all the things that they were told aren't appropriate before a holy God. We're guilty of this. Don't, don't read this commandment and think like, well, I don't, I don't have idols in my life. I don't, I don't make graven images. You may not. They may be confined to your, your, your brain and the ways that you, you act and operate. You don't, you don't ever put them down into visible format, but they're here and you're worshiping that God and he treats you in ways that the Bible would say are contrary to how he's revealed himself. And he allows things that the God of the Bible wouldn't allow. And you justify actions and justify life because you've created an image that's not real. We can't devalue God by fashioning him that puts him under our control. Number two, we're to actively orient our lives around worshiping him in the ways he's called us to. He talks about consequences that come with failing to do this. God says, if, if, you, if you make this type of God, if you, if you try to make me into a form where you can control me and manipulate me, I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's hard to know exactly what's happening here because he talks about discipline um, and, and, and judgment for doing this, and not just on the individuals who are guilty of it, but it seemingly is passed down to generation after generation for a, for a period of time. Now, it's probably worth mentioning that 
at this time when people are living to be certain ages, these generations are sometimes living together at the same time, right? So if God's disciplining the father, who's maybe the patriarch of the family, that discipline does impact the third and fourth generation, particularly if they're already alive at that time, right? But we certainly can understand that God's discipline and judgment upon an individual for failing to follow him correctly could have lasting effects upon the family, right? That, that there is an impact that would come and also an influence, a, a desire to replicate what dad did or what mom did, right? As parents, we have such a responsibility to pass on a correct understanding of worship because oftentimes our kids are going to worship God in the same way, right? The priority you put on, on gathering with God's family is probably going to be passed on to your children, and that's the type of level of priority they'll give to it as well. We have to see that the, 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 the choices we make have ramifications for the generations that are to come afterwards. God tells us that here. Says that there's consequences, there's impacts to the decisions that we make. The, the great thing here is that the blessings of following him are far greater than the consequences, right? He talks about the iniquity being passed on to the third and fourth generation, but those who show steadfast love to thousands, right? The, the blessing far greater than the curse that would come from failing him in this area. Worshiping him the ways he's called us to. We don't get to reinvent worship. We don't get to reinvent church. We don't get to reinvent the Bible to serve our perceived needs for today. And we certainly live in a culture that's doing that right now, right? We live in a day and age right now where people are reinterpreting what it means to worship him, what it means to gather as a church, right? What it means to, to, to understand the Bible and what the Bible says to us today. There are certain traditions that we have to hang on to, right? Like, as a church plant, one of the things that, that has been so freeing is that we didn't have like these historical traditions of a church that we're still doing because we've always done it that way, right? So we don't have particular pieces of furniture that we are fearful of getting rid of because of how a portion of our church may feel about those pieces of furniture, right? Um, we don't have those type of traditions, but there are traditions given to us in Scripture that we have to hang on to. Tradition is not bad, right? The traditions that, uh, that are rooted in Scripture that must remain paramount to our ways of worship, the idea of gathering as God's people under spiritual authority, right? It's why you can't substitute a Bible study at a coffee shop for church, because it's not the same thing, right? There's no spiritual authority in Starbucks when you gather with a coworker. You can study the Bible, certainly, and you can grow in your faith, certainly, but there's no biblical spiritual authority that's in play there, right? There, there's there's uh, the gathering piece. There's the singing piece, the teaching piece, the baptizing piece, the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Those are things that you will always see be a part of our church here at Sovereign Hope because those are traditions that are rooted in Scripture, small groups not rooted in Scripture, right? Some churches do Sunday school. Some churches do small group outside of the church, outside of the normal worship time. It's not a right. There's not a wrong. It's more of a preferential, what works best for your church community. What we have to have going on, though, is a gathering under spiritual authority where we are singing and teaching God's word to each other, where we're baptizing new believers, where we're partaking of the Lord's Supper together as, as believers. These are things that are rooted in Scripture. We have to worship God rightly in the ways that he's called us to. We don't get to reformat and package him differently to serve our needs. Number three, we reflect God rightly. We're to reflect God rightly. Rightly. 
It says in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There's to be a, a value and a respect attached to God's name. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 gives us a parallel picture in the New Testament where when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he talks about hallowed being God's name. Revered and holy is to be God's name in the ways that we treat him. Number one, we cannot minimize the reputation of God by associating him with frustrations, flippancy, or falsehood. How are we guilty of not holding God's name in a hallowed state? How are we guilty of not revering him as we should? If we aren't careful, our verbal expressions of God become a detractant to his glory. When we use his name as a, as a phrase or, or, a, or a cursing because we're frustrated, or if we, if we use his name and associations with him flippantly in our jokes and in our humor, um, if, we, if we use his name to justify what we are doing or what we have or haven't done as a, as, a, as a means of swearing or taking an oath upon his name, these are all ways that we can be guilty of, of not esteeming his name as we should. And when we talk about his name, we're really talking about his essence, his reputation. It's not just the, the name of God that we have to protect. It's, it's the ways that we reflect him in our life. And so we're warned to, to take that seriously. In the Old Testament, there was certainly relevancy to uh, not calling upon him to manipulate him through sorcery. Again, I don't know that anybody's uh, challenged and tempted to do such a thing, right? But we, we may be through our own types of ways that we pray, right? Like we don't pray to a God, again, that we get to manipulate or get to, to use for our agenda. They were also challenged not to misspeak uh, for God in the ways that they would prophesy, right? The prophets would come and say, thus says the Lord. And there were false prophets who would come and say, thus says the Lord, and it's not what he said, right? And they would be taking his name for vain purposes, for purposes to serve their agenda. There would also be people who would swear false oaths, right? They would take his name and use it for their advantage to try to justify the things that they were doing. For us as New Testament believers, we can't use his name as a common exclamation, a flippant joke, or to justify our inappropriate actions. It ought to be cringeworthy when we hear Jesus' name used in such a way. It ought, to be, it ought to be cringeworthy when we hear people say something like, I swear to God about something that is so flippant and so uh, unnecessary. Right? Like those things should cause us to cringe. And it certainly should be things that we deter ourselves from. Why? Because we want to point people to the greatness and the holiness and the awestruckness of who our God is. To use him and to use references to him and to picture him in a flippant way detracts from his glory. We're told here not to use it meaninglessly or casually or falsely as though he isn't important. The holy and the sacred can't become common and secular can't minimize his reputation. Instead, number two, we're to actively point others to God by the ways we carefully fashion our speech. Our verbal association should hold him in the highest regard. Another New Testament passage that helps us see what this looks like for the New Testament believer is Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
You see, that, that elevates it higher. Remember that the New Testament is all about elevating God's commands higher and deeper than what they were originally understood as, right? So this, this third commandment is not just about don't use Jesus's name or God's name as a cuss word, right? Colossians says, in everything that you do, whether it's the things that you say or the things that you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything that we do, by taking our name as a Christian, right? By taking his name and applying it to ourselves and saying, I am a Christ follower. That means everything that I say and do ought to be done in his name and for his glory and for his praise. And if I'm not doing that, I've taken his name in vain. Uh, I've, 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 I've affected his reputation because my reputation has been attached to him because I've taken his name, right? Our lifestyle as a Christian should reflect well of him, our reputation is a reflection of his reputation, so we should honor him. Think about it this way. I don't know how many of you uh, understand like um, branding and trademarking and copywriting, but a lot of times companies put out uh, guidelines, appropriate ways to use their branding, right? So, in some ways, companies say, like, if you're not a part of our company, you can't even use our logos or our branding for anything. But then within the company, there's guidelines and directions for how the company can use it so that it always reflects well upon the company, right? So, like, you get, like, branding guidelines that talk about, like, you can't use our, let's say, like, our school or our team name unless it's used in this font, in these colors, if you want to put it on a black background, it has to look like this. If you want to put it on a white background, it has to look like this. You can't, you can't missize it. Like it has to be this look, this way. Why? Because they want to protect the branding, right? Like they don't want that to get miscued, misused, and to where it now nev negatively reflects poorly on the company. They certainly don't want anybody and everybody slapping their logo on anything and everything they choose to because it may not be something they support, I think that's, that's, that, that helps us to maybe understand why this is so important, right? Like we don't get to take the name of Christ and belittle his branding by the ways that we live and talk and associate, right? He says, don't take that name in vain. Don't take that name for your purposes or your agendas because there's a reputation attached to it, a reputation that we're trying to spread all over the world for his glory and his honor. And if you take it in vain, it hurts that, right? It reflects poorly on that. We're called as image bearers to bear his image well. And one of the ways that we do that is viewing the, everything that we say and do through the lens of I do it in the name of Jesus, which certainly includes the ways that we talk about him. Certainly includes that, but I think it goes even deeper than that as well. And then lastly, number four, remember God rightly. Remember God rightly. The idea of remembering the Sabbath day. Now, this, this Sabbath command is probably the one that immediately jumps out to us and immediately conjures questions of, do we have to do that or not? Do we have to do that as a New Testament believer or not? We had to do it in the Old Testament. Do we have to do that in the New Testament? I think it's important to once again note that the New Testament talks about Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Certainly talking about a spiritual rest here, right? 
But the idea of resting in the completed work of Christ is certainly reiterated here in the New Testament. I think we can say that, number one, we cannot diminish the need to be with God by filling our days with the common activities of this world. Right Now, we're, we're blessed to live in a society where uh, Sabbath-type rests are built into most of our work weeks, right? Rarely does somebody have to work seven days constantly without a day of rest. Now, the Israelites were coming from that. They were coming from Egypt as slaves where they worked every day, all day. They never had days off. We actually get blessed in our culture to have two days, right? Because there was disagreements about the Sabbath Saturday and the Lord's Day Sunday. And so for most of us, we operate and work in jobs where we get both of those days off. Now, we won't take time to read through all of this, but in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, and in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, there is caution given about a mindset, particularly in the New Testament, where we, we elevate certain days above others and we judge people for not following those days the way that we do, right? So we do have to understand that in the New Testament, it does work a little bit differently, right? There were, there were far more regulations on the Sabbath in the Old Testament than in the New. Some of that given by God, a lot of that given by the Pharisees that the people were held to. But we can certainly understand that in the New Testament, we are called to worship on the Lord's day. We are to gather with God's people, which does give us implications for protecting time in our week for that. Some of us have to work on Sundays, right? Like some of us, the way our job works, we do end up having to work on Sundays. And I think there's freedom in the New Testament to not feel guilty about that, right? I think it's why Paul says, some days more important than other days for some people. Some people treat all the days kind of the same, right? Like there's freedom in that. And we respect the, the heart condition of each person and how they view that. But what we can't get away from is that there has to be time in our week devoted to the Lord outside of the common activities that we carry out on a, on a weekly basis. There has to be dedica- dedicated time to the Lord. Our time dedicated to rest and worship is rooted in God's creation and in salvation, right? Like he references here, why do we have the Sabbath? Well, because God laid it out for us in the creation week, right? Six days he creates, on the seventh day he rests. But then if you skip ahead to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, he's reiterating the Sabbath piece. And he says, why are we going to have the Sabbath? So that you'll remember your salvation, so that you'll remember your salvation. So it's bigger than just, hey, work really hard for six days and then take a day off because you need it, because you earned it, because you worked really hard. It's, hey, that day off is meant to point you back to your creator, meant to point you back to your redeemer. Right? There's a spiritual peace to the rest, right? That we need to commune with him. We work well to his glory so we can rest well to our enjoyment. And our enjoyment is coupled with the idea of devotion and communion with him. It's a time to remember. It's a time to praise him lest we forget. Remember all that we've seen in Exodus, the idea that we have to remember, 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 don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Number two, we're to actively point ourselves and others to God by the ways we carefully fashion our week. We're to strive for the rest that comes from communing with God. We need the worship. We need the fellowship with his people. To set apart time in our week with him requires thoughtful preparation and pre-planning, right? These times should shape and pattern all the other times. I mean, I do believe that while, while we don't have like strict regulations about a Sabbath day, 
I do believe that the New Testament commands, the things that we're to do to one another, the member covenant that we have in the back, the ways that we're to care for and love and fellowship together, to do that, we have to put it in our schedule. We have to put it in our calendar. Otherwise, it won't happen. And that ought to be driving our calendar, right? It's not fill the calendar up with everything that we want and then fit God in with whatever's left. It ought to be, he's my God. I serve him fully. Here's how I'm going to make sure that I have time with him and his people. And then with the time that's left over, that's what I'm going to fill it with, with the other things of this world. We strive to serve him well with the ways that we work and the ways that we rest. The Sabbath was given to man, not man given to the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27 tells us it's for our good. Why should Sabbath consideration be valid today, even though maybe it's not mandated in the same ways? One, we all need rest, right? Rest is not a bad thing. It's a needed thing. It reminds us that we're finite and that we need rest. Number two, we need intentional time to remember. So we need to prioritize that time with the Lord. And number three, we're called to worship well. We're called to worship well. As much as we can in our roles of authority, we need to prioritize this mindset for our people as well, right? So parents need to help model this for their kids. Employers need to help model this for those employees. I think coaches need to model this for their players as well, right? To protect that time that can be given to the Lord because it's important, it's needed. The Lord lays that out for his people here as well. First four commands, prioritize God rightly. No other gods besides him. Worship him rightly. Don't make him into an image that you can control. Reflect him rightly. Hold his name up well in the ways that you speak and in the ways that you act. Remember him rightly, right? Prioritize time for him in your week is what we're called to do. The application for today, have you left your idols behind for the joy of following Christ alone? Have you left your idols behind for the joy of following Christ alone? It's what Christians do. They leave their idols behind. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The passage that Daniel read today from Acts 17 also talks about the resurrected Jesus and why we leave our idols behind. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 had the privilege of being at Snowbird this week and all the sermons were tied around 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about whether it's worth following Jesus or not. Is it worth giving up the idols for Jesus, right? Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter two says, I had everything. I had every pleasure that I could possibly have. I had sex, I had money, I had power, I had it all and it did not satisfy. It didn't do what it promised. It was all vanity. He closes Ecclesiastes by saying, what's the purpose of man? What's the most valuable thing? To fear him and to keep his commandments. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, it's not worth what we do. It's not worth living the way we live if Jesus is not alive. If he's dead, we're silly for doing all the things that we do. But, he says, if Jesus is alive, it is absolutely worth everything that it costs us to follow him. Absolutely worth it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you've left the idols for the living and the true God, waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Absolutely worth it. 
Because he's coming. He's coming again. And he will keep all the promises that he's made to us as our God. The idols, they can't keep the promises. The one true God does. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that you've revealed yourself very clearly to us about who you are and what you desire, how we worship you. Lord, protect us from the tendencies and the temptations we have to recreate you in a manageable way where we can manipulate you and use you for our agendas. God, help us to see that we're guilty of that temptation often. We're guilty of giving in to that. We may not construct a a wooden idol to bow down to. We may not call you by a different name that would identify us as a worshiper of other gods. But God, help us to see that oftentimes we make you something that you're not. And by doing that, we have made another God. We have created an idol. We've given our devotion to one that is not you. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to see the goodness of the ways that you call us to live. Lord, help us to see that the things that we say and do, the ways that we act, is to be done in your name. Lord, protect us from allowing our language and our actions to deteriorate in such a way where we take away from your reputation and your fame, that we detract from it in the eyes of others because we defame you by, by, by treating you in a flippant, unimportant way. Lord, give us cause and reason to evaluate our schedules to make sure that we're always prioritizing time with you. Help us to see the goodness behind that design. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.